This show is sponsored by Qualcomm. They're part of the daily lives of billions of people around the world. They may not be the name you think of when you think of smartphones, but they invented all the stuff smartphones rely on to be so smart. Essentially, Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the least corrupt person ever to come out of New Jersey, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Today, we have a special episode for you. Recode's senior policy and politics editor, Tony Rahm, spoke with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker recently in Washington, D.C. They talked about the future of the Democratic Party, how he's looking at the tech industry, and whether the U.S. Senate is broken beyond repair. Take it away, Tony. All right. Thanks, Kara. I'm sitting here with Senator Cory Booker, Democratic senator from New Jersey. Senator, how are you? I'm great, Tony. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, it's disgusting outside. That's mostly why we're in here. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the sweltering, awful, I feel like I'm standing next to a truck exhaust pipe kind of D.C. day. Summer in Washington. Oh, yeah. No, I'm getting out of the swamp. Uh, we will drain the swamp with me, I will leave. Uh, so <laughs> we're here to talk about lots of stuff, right? Technology, national politics, things of the sort. But I'd be remiss not to start today by asking you about health care. Now, we're sitting down on Wednesday, July 19th. And the important preface here is that everything seems to be changing just by the minute. Literally, as we sat down here, we got a score suggesting potentially millions of Americans could lose health insurance if Republicans proceed with their plans. But so much has changed in the last few weeks since Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that you guys were sticking around in August. So give us a recap of the last seven days. Where do we stand? I mean, sincerely, it's been one of those things where you have multiple shifts during one day. Uh, But what we know right now is that the Republican senators went up to the White House to have another Republican-only meeting. This whole process has been opaque. It has been not transparent. It's it's, uh, not uh, open and engaged. For all those people who think that Obamacare was shoved through, the reality is there are hundreds of bipartisan meetings and hearings. The people that were summoned to the White House or the meetings that were had with Obama then were actually Republicans. He actually held a meeting on C-SPAN where he engaged in discussion slash It was debate. a debate. It was a huge debate. <clears throat> yes, with them over health care. I mean, it was the most accessible process. Hearings where doctors and nurses, healthcare professionals, activists, organizations like the American Cancer Society all were participating in the shaping and the crafting of this bill. And actually – Dozens of Republican amendments to the bill were allowed. So Republicans actually shaped the bill even though they didn't vote on it. This process is 100 percent different. Uh, It's being done behind closed doors. The bills are being shaped. Mitch McConnell seems to be throwing continuous things against the wall to see if he can get the votes he needs to get elements of Obamacare repealed or the whole thing repealed. And that's really where we are right now is CBO just said, hey, you repeal this bill. 30 plus million people are going to lose health insurance in the United States of America. And he's saying, well, we're going to repeal it and replace it. But it's it's really akin to shoving the American people off a cliff and yelling at them on their way down. Hey, we're going to get you a parachute. Don't worry about it before you hit the ground. Yeah. And that that plan you're talking about, that that would essentially repeal it, but give them a two-year window to think about what exactly would come next. Right, right. What What does that actually mean, though, in practice? What would that mean for Americans if they proceeded in that manner? Well, I think that literally the, the cliff analogy is, is, is right, is that Americans would be in free fall, hoping that government would figure something out. 
And this is a process that gives me no confidence in the way that they've been conducting themselves so far. The president hasn't been leading for all of his bluster saying, only I can fix it. I'll give you health care that's terrific. He actually hasn't been leading on this. He's given a paltry effort, sort of giving this to Paul Ryan, giving this to Mitch McConnell, uh, not really leading on how, what his vision for health care is. And so what's come out of those Republican processes has been bills that will savage the gains that were made under the Affordable Care Act, whether it's over 10 million people that gained health care through Medicaid expansion, uh, whether it's people that uh, gained health insurance because suddenly they weren't constricted by their pre-existing condition. So many of those gains were being eradicated with Republican after Republican plan that even Donald Trump sitting on the sidelines, just yelling and screaming from the sidelines, even he said was just mean. And so here- This was during earlier in the process when the House had passed its bill after they had celebrated at the White House. You know, Then he said, this thing is mean. a little mean. And, and I think what people need to understand, especially your listeners who- I think folks who listen to you are all about American competitiveness, about uh, technology, about innovation, about staying ahead. We're behind the rest of the, of the industrialized world when it comes to uh, just the basics. So number one, I know friends of mine who wouldn't leave the companies they were with, something called job lock, because they said, I can't go and start some kind of innovation, start a company because I won't be able to afford my health insurance or my pre-existing condition will bar me. So folks actually were able to get into the, the – Obamacare gave people a chance to get out there and be innovators. Uh, some people said, look, I, I am, am sort of trapped in this environment where if I lose my health insurance, I will go bankrupt because I can't afford my medical bills. Well, personal bankruptcy in this country has gone significantly down, down 50 percent. So if you look at just like trying to foster human potential, in fact, the most important – we know this, science tells us – that the most important part of brain development is that from the prenatal days until the first year, while half of our children coming into this world in America get preventative care, get prenatal care uh, through the Affordable Care Act, uh, uh, through the expansion of Medicaid. So if we are trying to develop the most valuable natural resource on the planet Earth, which is not cobalt or gas or oil, <laughs> it is the genius in a, in a global knowledge-based economy. It's the genius of our population. Providing basic health care as a right, saying, America, we are going to have what Donald Trump said, the best health care, most affordable, most accessible, quality health care for everyone. If that is really the goal. Sure. So let's zoom out and talk a little bit about the current political moments. There have been lots of very uh, <laughs> interesting moments in American political history where folks have been opposed to the president, to Congress, to parties, things of the sort. Talk about the resistance, this anti-Trump resistance that's emerged, not just in D.C., but around the country, and put it in the context of U.S. political history. Is this a truly unique moment, or are folks more woke, so to speak, to some of the things happening in politics now? Look, I mean, there are lots of things that the president is proposing in his budget that are astonishing to, to Americans of all different ilks. Um, when you have a budget that slashes everything from investing in dealing with pandemics worldwide all the way to after-school programming or public education. There are things that are happening with civil rights and voting rights and workers' rights uh, all around this country, environmental justice issues. I mean, I can go through all of the issues that I think people are talking openly, and I've seen tens of thousands of people descending on Washington, Republican offices taken over because of the oncoming of Trump. But, but this is the larger historical context when I'm in. I'm sorry if my party, if my side of the aisle is defining themselves in this historic moment about only about what they're against, 
then we're missing the, I think, the lesson. Trump is a symptom of a deeper problem. And, and he was able to capitalize on our failure to address the reality in our country that was, that was there under President Obama as well as trends are happening in this nation where we, you and I, are, are roughly probably the same generation. You're a little younger than I am. But we are going to be the first generation of Americans to stop a tradition of generally every generation doing better than the one before. Wages have been stagnating. Uh, you see people making immense, unimaginable wealth while others are seeing every part of their cost of living go up and up and up. And for a guy that lives in a inner city community, uh, when you come to people who are poor, uh, th- things were wor- we it, it was worthy of us marching in the streets and screaming and yelling before we even uh, had uh, President Obama. Unconscionable things that too many Americans, in my opinion, are silent upon. You, you know, I just put in a piece of legislation about women in prison. Most mm-hmm. Americans have no idea that one out of every three imprisoned women on the planet Earth are are in the United States. And that was before Donald Trump was president. And, but let's talk about those women. One out of three women in, in the planet Earth uh, that are in prison are in the United States. They're overwhelming, disproportionately, even more so than men, nonviolent offenders. Their, their rates of incarceration are going up 50% faster than men, but they are overwhelmingly victims 77% victims of partner violence, 86% of them are survivors of sexual trauma. And then we put them into, into prisons that are Byzantine in ter- terms of their uh, cruelty of what happens. Pregnant women shackled, uh, shoved into solitary confinement. Most of these women are mothers of children under 18 years old. And instead of understanding the social science that shows in every way we should be trying to keep those bonds between mother and children, because many of these women are going to be there for months or a few years, going to come back out. Those children have dramatically higher rates of being eventually incarcerated themselves. We put up barriers between them and communicating with their kids. Um, um, everything from uh, uh, charging them so that to forget adequate sanitary products, uh, where they have to make terrible decisions between calling parents. So I give you all this to say, how can we be comfortable in the United States of America where things I've seen in just, just the last month traveling around our country, going through Alabama and seeing uh, communities that have toxic waste dumped in these, these are particularly African-American communities. There are so many issues that are that are assaulting the ideals of this country. And so I'm happy people are getting woke suddenly and engaged. But the only thing necessary for evil to be triumphant is for good people to do nothing. And for us who luxuriate in this democracy and have the power to say four words, I am an American, we are benefiting from struggle and sacrifice and protest uh, of people that came generations before that gave us rights we take for granted, from workers' rights uh, uh, to civil rights. But somehow our generation, we have voting right, voting levels going down. Uh, and all we, this predates Trump. All of this that's predates what I'm Trump. Saying. So, so I guess my question to you is, are you just not seeing this current anti-Trump resistance uh, evolving into something that's willing to talk about these issues, whether it's you know women in prison, whether it's uh, access to polls and the ability to vote, whether it's climate change and so forth. Have, has, has this resistance just not matured to the point where it's focused on those long-term ills? No, I, 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 sell it. I sat down with um, incredible women in my state right on Monday, right before I came back to D.C. in Newark. And I was like, so they got me so pumped because they are coming off the sidelines and they are leading and they are challenging the Democratic Party. So I, I'm not criticizing that. I, I think that, that it is maturing. We'll see in this next election. I always tell people over and over again, and Obama did it to my favorite speeches he gave in his last year was to Howard University, where he said, look, 
you guys, millennials are so progressive. Even Republican millennials are pro- progressive on anything from uh, marriage equality to climate change. He said, look, you don't have to occupy anything, guys. Just vote. If millennials voted, not at like in the 20 percentiles in midterm elections, but at the 40s, it would change Congress overnight. Same thing with, with New Jersey. I mean, in 2008, we had record turnouts in elections all over New Jersey. In 2009, we had record low turnouts, and Chris Christie was elected barely because Democrats didn't show up. Then he cuts uh, Planned Parenthood funding. He cuts the earned income tax credit, which rose, uh, made 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 working poor people have to have to pay more. And everybody kept saying to me, "Why is the Republicans doing this to me?" And I'm like, "The Republicans didn't do this to us. We did it to ourselves because we didn't turn out. Because we didn't turn out." And and that's what people have to understand. King said it eloquently in a generation before us. That, that what we have to repent for in this day and age is not the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people alone, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. So this is one of those moments where maybe our generation is finally waking up and saying, if we are not engaged, this is what we're going to get. It, it just feels like to me, though, that it's very far from that, right? They're, the folks get very, very angry when Trump tweets something negative about a you know cable show host or about a sitting member of Congress. And there's a lot of outrage, but that no one has really figured out, whether it's in Congress or elsewhere, how to harness that in a meaningful way to get policy things done or to get folks to the polls. It, it, it still seems like there's a gap between that resistance. Well, well if you're looking at just electoral response, I mean, from the... Congressional special elections we've seen before, we've seen miraculous stuff. I mean, everybody's like bemoaning the fact that we lost Nassau. I looked at the fact we- And that's s- in Georgia, the Georgia special yeah, election. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I should be more <laughs> specific. Not, For not, those people not, who <laughs> are not as political junkies like you and me. Yeah, we just lived this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but to have a 20-point swing from just seven months before that election is a pretty remarkable swing. And, and then you think to yourself, God, if this was replicated 20-point swings in every one of these races- there are 70 Republican seats that have that are more Democrat uh, than that seat, and that would mean we would sweep so many more seats and take back control of Congress. So I don't want to diminish the activism that's going on right now that is extraordinary, and nor do I want to tell you that there's been measurable changes in Congress. Let's begin with this Congress. The first thing the Republican Party tried to do in the House out of the blocks was get rid of the independent ethics oversight. And boom, what happened? They met the outrage of the people. I can go all the way from there to Jeff Sessions recusing himself. Did he recuse himself because I- Related to the Russian investigation. Related to the Russian investigation. Did he recuse himself because I was screaming in the Senate? No. But did he recuse himself because popular opinion and protest was demanding it? Yes, he did. So you think that actually has real impact? You think the health care bill? Trust me, there were New Jersey Congress people. When they saw the outrage uh, coming forward, they did not vote for that craven bill that was coming out of the House. It is making a difference, people expressing their voices. And by the way, it's even more powerful when they don't do it in a partisan way. If they show up to a Republican House member and say, I'm a Democrat, no. If they say this is a moral outrage, it is anti-American, it's against our common values, that is powerful. I tell people all the time, one of the most down moments of my life was when I watched, and I, my state sits, has the Statue of Liberty's back. Uh, I mean, this ideals, <laughs> give me your tired, your poor, your hungry, the wretched refuse from your teeming shores. So it, it was like, it put me, my staff knows this, in a funk when that was suddenly what he was pushing, this travel ban, this Muslim ban um, that he was doing. Yeah, the president's immigration ordered the his first, first and second his, versions, his, I guess. Yes. His, his, well, he's been, he keeps facing defeats, including one in the Supreme Court this week. But, but his original just anti-American ban on people because of their religion. And he was even saying in, in his, we're going to ban Muslims. 
And then what did I see at one of my lowest moments? Because you're not defined in life by what happens to you. You're defined by how you react to it. I rush out to Dulles Airport to try to talk to Customs and Border Patrol with a federal court order to allow people being detained to have lawyers. Because people were at airports around the country. They were having a hard time getting in, figuring out what the actual situation was. Exactly. And federal courts, remember, three branches of government, you had a constitutional crisis, I think, between the federal government, uh, uh, excuse me, between the executive branch being ordered by the judicial branch to, in the case in Virginia, to allow people to have representation. So I left this dinner in Washington, ran to the airport, tried to intervene the other, the Article One branch of government, the, the legislator that I am, to try to get them to do to obey the judicial branch, and and I'm so caught up in that negotiation. But then I walk out, and what do I see? One of the best moments of America that I witnessed, that is what America looks like, that that airport was packed with people cheering Muslims coming off of – I saw guys with kippahs, yarmulkes on, cheering Muslims, not even necessarily American citizens, coming out of the gate, all chanting and cheering the truth of who America is, the values we project to the world, what has made us a great country. And so in this moment, in the darkness and the shadow that I think is – uh, so many of the policies that are being projected, whether it's ripping health care away from children, uh, whether it's rolling back voting rights, th- that doesn't define this country. It's what we do right now in this time uh, that is what I want to see projected. And it's not a democratic value. No. So it sounds like you think the resistance is meaningful. It's powerful. It's lasting. Potentially, it can get stuff done. I think there are a lot of folks, though, who think the resistance should be Democrats calling for the president's impeachment. So, again, <laughs> I want to see Donald Trump gone as bad <laughs> as anyone. And I have been a vociferous critic of his from the moment that he <laughs> was a candidate and came down those escalators and started attacking people based upon their national origin or or their race. And there needs to be a process that I believe that's investigating him for, as the Constitution lays out, and people should r- read their Constitution about <laughs> what it means to be impeached, what can you be impeached for, uh, the kind of high crimes, and and what the process of impeachment is. And so that's why I, I recorded very passionate videos about getting a special prosecutor, because if this president broke laws, I believe that he should be impeached. And, and that process I feel really good about right now. But I want to tell you from my experiences with the two presidents that in my lifetime, well, one not in my lifetime, uh, Nixon, and then you saw uh, obviously uh, uh, Clinton was impeached. That's a pro- there's a spelled out in our Constitution uh, that is a House process. That House of Representatives is controlled by Republicans. And so as we saw with, with Nixon, this is going to be a long, tough process. What I'm doing is trying to make sure that process is moving forward in terms of the investigations uh, and calling for them. But I also want to put my energy right now on defending fellow Americans that are now suffering, not just because of the things Trump is doing. That's why I spent so much time uh, going to North Carolina, Alabama, Louisiana, all over my state of New Jersey, because there's so much injustice happening right now that we need to be there for each other and fighting against injustice. That's why I've been in prisons. Uh, um, that's why I've been in hospitals. Uh, that's why I've been in public education, visiting schools, because there are pe- vulnerable people right now under threat from this administration and threat from conditions that existed before this administration that, that is a focus of my fight. But we're well. a long way away from, from impeachment. We, we, if all If he broke laws and we've seen things – If being the word there, it seems. It is an if word. But look – 
what I saw this week, this last 10 days, rather, 14 days, I can't, I, it's, all, it's like beyond my imagination that Donald Trump's son can get a letter from someone clearly saying the Russian government wants to help you defeat Hillary Clinton. Plain English. And I know Republicans who, who I respect, Democrats, everybody I've talked to on both sides of the aisle in those private moments you often have in the Senate says, are you kidding me? That would have gone right to the FBI. Out of bounds that a foreign government is trying to come in here and affect our election. And what did Donald Trump Jr. do along with Paul Manafort, along with Jared Kushner, who is now in the White House? What did they do? Did they do the right thing, the American thing, the patriotic thing and turn that over? No. They said they were happy about this and they went to this meeting. So for those people who think that collusion is not going on, these folks said they, were, they would be happy to collude with a foreign power. So we are definitely in an area that, to me, there is smoke about what this administration might have been involved with. Smoke but not fire, it seems like. Well, again, these are, they're, these are legal. I, I'm a, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I was about to say I'm an attorney, but I, you know, I went to Yale Law School and I passed a bar, but I'm definitely not a practicing <laughs> attorney. Um, that makes two of us. I'm yeah, not a practicing attorney. <laughs> yeah. But there are legal standards here that have to be met. I, I have people in the Senate Judici- uh, Intelligence Committee that are doing good work here, Mark Warner. Uh, I told him recently he's the right guy at the right time in history and in the right place uh, as a ranking member or vice chair of that committee. There is Mueller, who I support. Um, special prosecutor. A, a special prosecutor. Forgive me. I'm giving the, the political <laughs> junkie shorthand. All, all of this is going on. And that process is going to have to happen. And I think that the press – first of all, God bless the free press. As much as they've taken attacks, some of them literal <laughs> like Montana body slams. Yeah. but. God bless the free press because they have been breaking stories. I mean, Flynn, uh, Michael Flynn, a national security, former national security advisor, may still be there right now if it wasn't for information that the free press uh, in the United States of America enshrined in our Constitution if they did not expose that. So, uh, and, and they are under massive attack and assault in a, in a Russian-style way, which you, the Russians, what they're doing in Eastern Europe, is trying to get people in countries to stop believing in truth and information and undermining those critical institutions in a democracy. That's what's happening from the White House attacking uh, the press in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. Um, but the God bless the press for being indefatigable in, in trying to pursue the truth as well. I want to I want to switch to technology and take a break in a second. But before I do, I want to follow up on your comment about the press just now. Are you worried about an incident in the United States targeting the press? Absolutely. I'm worried about we already saw Republican congressmen and, and many others get shot in an awful um, moment where partisanship and hate has been whipped up. It's the attack on uh, Congressman Scalise and yeah. some of the others who yes. were in a baseball and, and, game. And we've seen attacks on press with the one specific body slamming, threats, um, the kind of vile, vile stuff from threats of rape and violence against the press that I've talked to people in the press that they're receiving right now. But, but if we condemn that stuff, this is my call to everybody who is angry about this or even the stuff that the, the bile that st- Trump tweets, my call to everybody, we cannot become what we're trying to fight against. And, and, I, and, I, and I, this happened to me at – I'm a big animal activist uh, just for humane treatment of animals and I'm at a big event uh, where people are talking about compassion and, and somebody comes up to me and shows me a, a tweet they sent to Paul Ryan that was so mean and so vicious. 
And I don't understand. Darkness, as King said, can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate can't drive out hate. If there's anything in this time where you see an increased amount of hatred, increased amount of vicious, you cannot call for change in the world if you're not embodying the change you want to see. And this is a time more than ever that w- that you can be tough, you can be gritty. If Gandhi can can move an empire out of India but do it but being centered in love, if Mandela, imprisoned by his oppressors, uh, can still uh, beat them, beat them. And, and, and kill apartheid, but doing it with love. If John Lewis, the greatest man serving in Congress, in my opinion, um, could face billy clubs and tear gas and violence, but still do it, his most powerful weapon is, is goodness, decency, humility, and love. Now more than ever, all of us on Twitter, if you're tweeting the same kind of vicious stuff back at Republicans, at Donald Trump, you are part of the problem. We have to elevate the conversation in this country. We have to show our dignity. You cannot beat back uh, uh, the kind of darkness that's, that's rising in this country where more people feel licensed to hate that often manifests in violence. You cannot do that unless you are fighting it with weapons of light, uh, with effort, lessons of goodness, lessons of mercy, lessons of decency. So on that note, we're going to come back. We're going to talk more about that stuff and some technology. But first, let me kick it back to Kara Swisher, who has a word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by Qualcomm, the company that invented the fundamental technology in everything you love about your phone. From download speeds to stunning photos to GPS, none of it would work the way you count on without Qualcomm engineers getting there first. And now the company that changed everything with the smartphone is about to change everything else. Qualcomm is why you love your smartphone, no matter what brand of phone it is. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash we invent. In the information age, data is the new oil, which is why Amazon Web Services built Amazon Kinesis, a powerful new way to collect, process, and analyze streaming data so you can get timely insights and react quickly. Websites, mobile apps, IoT sensors, and the like can generate a huge amount of streaming data, sometimes terabytes an hour. If processed continually, all that data can help you learn about what your customers, products, and applications are doing right now and take actions in real time. Amazon Kinesis from AWS lets you do that easily for less. With Kinesis, you pay only for the resources you use. No minimums, no upfront commitments. Learn more at kinesis.aws. All right. Thanks, Kara. We're back. I'm still sitting here with Senator Booker, who has not run for the exit at this point. Now, is Tony, uh, <laughs> your, is Tony your real name or is it Anthony? Oh, you can't turn the tables on me I like that. I just want to know because I am Corey Anthony Booker. Oh, I are you? All right. I, I I will admit for the first time that Anthony is, in fact, my real I name. I feel a bond with My you. mother will be very happy if she figures out it, how to load the Recode website and click on a podcast. <laughs> she would be very excited. So speaking of technology, let's talk a little bit about it. Yes. Um, you know, I noticed one of your tweets this week. I, I'm pretty sure it was this week where uh, someone had had asked you about the Amazon and Whole Foods merger. Amazon's going to spend somewhere close to $14 billion to buy up this grocery chain. I'll ask you about the deal in a second, but I guess the question I had is what your feelings about the tech industry in general are. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, these are huge companies. Do you think that they're too big and that the U.S. government has you know, the tools at its disposal to regulate them in the first place? So first of all, yes. And the, the, this consolidation that's happening all over our country, I think, is not a positive trend. So tech is too big in your mind? Well, well I think this, these, these mergers we need to begin to look at because – all the analysis I've seen, one from Bloomberg, Princeton University did one, the, the understandable forces in an economy work. If there's less competition, then prices tend to go up. If there's less competition, workers' salaries 
you're not competing for workers, tend to go down. And, and so whether it's your customer or a worker, I think that these are the trends in America that are working against the things that make us most frustrated, which is the cost of living keeps going up, but our salaries do not. And I do believe that we have been too lax in this country uh, as we approve all of these mergers to the detriment of our society as a whole. And I still have that, uh, know that tweet in my mind. People were asking me about it, but I still felt the need to defend my local Whole Foods (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, because uh, Whole Foods made it. I worked for years to battle the food desert in Newark, New Jersey, and did it through all kind of creative means from literally urban farming, acres of farms to uh, um, having uh, supermarkets move in or whatever. But but it, it, we have a crisis in our country right now that um, you're seeing these savage trends that often are coming about by a short-termism. We've seen uh, companies, the majority of their – in fact, one study between uh, 2002-2013 looking at the S&P 500 saw that the top companies, over 80 percent of their uh, of their earnings were not being invested back in their companies. They were being used for dividends and they were being used uh, uh, for stock buybacks. So we're getting back to this point. And those elevate your stock prices and give executives, the elites, uh, great bonuses, great wealth. Uh, but they're hurting long-term economic growth. And if you're not investing in your people, in fact, you're finding the most creative means to suppress labor. One of the other uh, things that's happening is this fissured workplace. If you used to be a security person in companies of old, uh, in a factory in for Ford, you were working for Ford. Well, now companies are outsourcing all that. The airline industry is, is has some of the dirtiest hands in this. We're, we're, we're people who deliver food to airlines, who clean the planes, clean your planes, which is critical work. They're now being done by contract workers where it's a race to the bottom between those competing companies who are bidding for those contracts. And how do they get the lowest bid is to suppress people's workers, suppress workers' wages. And as a result of that, what happens? I see this in Newark where I live. Friends of mine who work for uh, uh, companies, uh, people I know who work for companies that clean airlines, work for the, in the airports – Full-time jobs they work, pick up extra shifts where they can get it, but they still live below the poverty line. So consolidation is not doing good things, it seems, uh, in your mind. Uh, The tech industry is partly responsible for some of that. On the Amazon Whole Foods deal in particular, though, are you concerned? There were lots of grocery stocks that took big hits afterwards, lots of companies that seemed a little bit uh, fearful about Amazon's expanding footprint. How do you actually feel about this deal? Yeah, look, the Congressional Black Caucus and I, I just signed on to a letter today uh, directing it towards the attorney general, which I have a lot of skepticism about his willingness to do anything about it, but saying basically, look, we're having a hard enough time to get supermarkets to move into our urban communities, to give people choice, to give people price competitiveness so that actually they're paying for affordable groceries. I worry about grocery consolidation. I worry about uh, the jobs that many of these grocery stores create. And so I am, I am skeptical of this particular merger, highly skeptical of it. And I believe this consolidation as well as other consolidations, we should be holding a far higher bar than we are as we approve these. And we're seeing it in the cable industry. We're seeing it in – I mean every vertical I can think of, you're seeing massive consolidations, which I do not think always works in the best interest of workers and consumers. In fact, all the evidence that I've looked at uh, so far has shown quite the opposite, that net-net – it has been to the uh, detriment of consumers and to the detriment of 
uh, of workers. So do you think that the U.S. government, regardless of who happens to be in office, Democrat or Republican, do you think that the government has the tools, particularly with respect to the tech and telecom sector, to really be that watchdog on antitrust? This has come up a whole lot recently. The Federal Trade Commission, the Justice Department, which both have you know big roles in this space, do they have the tools and the expertise to do it? I, I believe they have the tools, but there are interpretations of the power that we have that we're not using under Republican administrations. And maybe the best example I can give was from a hearing I had today with the FCC, uh, the Federal Communications Commission. Um, I had a I, I, I went after one of the folks who was involved in, in when the FCC said we do not have the right to deal with intrastate. Uh, communications. And specifically, I was looking at the cost of prison phone calls, which is usury rates for people trying to call their families. And and I got very angry because their conclusion was that they don't have that power. Now, I read the same legislation as they do, um, the same enabling legislation, and it's clear on the face that we do. But there is a different philosophy of corporate power that is driving uh, particularly the Republican Party right now, where you see years of 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 collective wisdom and experiences in this country um, that said that competition is good and you cannot let more and more powerful companies uh, aggregating more and more political power because remember since citizens united these corporations have are pouring un, unimaginable amounts of sums of money dark money often into the political process so these these larger uh, um, oligarchies that are being created um, are becoming more and more dangerous to the public good, in my opinion, because of the political power that they're gaining as well as the market power that they're gaining. And we come from a great tradition from the trust busting and the history of that. In fact, if you compare us to other countries and what's allowed, um, we are really slacking in terms of asserting consumer protections, asserting consumer rights, asserting the rights of, of workers. And I think that this is one of the major causes of one of the most pernicious, nefarious aspects of our society right now, which is the the incredible um, uh, wealth disparities that we have in our country. So you aren't uh, particularly confident in FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, who was at the hearing today, or FTC Acting Chairwoman uh, Maureen Allhausen and others. It seems like you don't think that you know they're willing to go the distance on this stuff? <laughs> um, I would say it more passionately. That <laughs> <laughs> not, not particularly confident is 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 the, the, the low How end. How passionate would you be? Go uh, for it. <laughs> um, I, I, I think these are extremely dangerous uh, people in positions right now that are going to do nothing but uh, inflame uh, the economic injustices we're already seeing in our country, giving more power to corporate consolidation, to corporations uh, as a whole, and less power to Americans. And we will be losing what I believe uh, are so much of – these are anti-democratic forces that are being unleashed in our country that are undermining the power and the strength of, of, uh, of citizenship of individuals. Uh, as corporations in our country are gaining more and more power. Now, again, you have to understand, I am a guy that believes uh, in the power businesses have. I was a mayor of a city and worked so hard to get our first new hotels built in 40 years, uh, to help manufacturers in my city, uh, to help. um, In fact, we brought about the biggest economic uh, expansion in my city uh, in 60 years. I worked hard to get the port competitive. I believe that market forces are really important to drive uh, wealth creation, uh, not for the few, but for the many, to drive middle class growth. I believe in all these things. But the problem we have right now in America 
and people need to understand this, is it is a perversion of the free market where corporate villainy is reigning. And I can give you just examples from my city uh, of corporate villainy and the fact that my the Passaic River was stolen from generations because corporations took shortcuts of pouring their chemicals and their and their toxins into that river. Does Silicon Valley recognize that? Do you think those that the tech CEOs, folks out in Silicon Valley, recognize that you know some folks perceive them to be these corporate villains? Do they have an understanding of their responsibility and their image and the work that they're doing and the effects that they have? On uh, you know, I, I know a lot of CEOs, obviously, uh, from the uh, CEOs in in Newark. Uh, I've seen how CEOs can be such great American citizens, not to mention corporate citizens. But we've got to start having a conversation in this country. Like, what? How are we going to measure the success of the tech sector? Is it by its ability to create a small handful of billionaires, or the ability for us to create pro-democracy forces, empowering individuals, improving quality of life, improving financial security, expanding opportunity? the kind of things that we want largely for democracy. And I think this is a discussion, a lively discussion we should be having, not just with the tech sector, um, but with all sectors. When I was seeing what, how can we as Americans who want to support innovation even, just see the decisions that are being made in Washington that undermine the right kind of tech expansion, the things in the new energy sector. So there's a lot of conversations that 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 I want to try to be a part of forcing. And let's just deal with the tech sector on just issues of diversity. It's astonishing to me that all the data that I look at, in fact, Kleiner Perkins uh, uh, looked at it, or or, or uh, um, not Kleiner Perkins, but um, oh, uh, uh, a New York-based uh, uh, firm that looked at the, the, the tech companies that they were giving money to and found that women-run companies were performing better, women, with women founders were doing better. Well, why do women only receive about 10% of, of VC investments? Uh, African-Americans, they're incredible African-American innovators, but they get 1% of VC investments. We're seeing a startling lack of diversity, which actually hurts this country in the long run. And we also know tons of data and research shows the more diverse a country, company is, the more successful it is. So there, there are a lot of conversations we have to start having in, in an honest candid way because the trends that are happening, the the digitized economy, the technological transformations. I mean, Donald Trump was talking about Mexicans stealing American jobs. Well, the microchip uh, was a source of lots of jobs being dis- disappearing far more than uh, any overseas outsourcing. And so if we're not talking about what the new economy is going to look like and how that's going to hurt uh, many Americans unless we get ahead of these trends with our imagination. And so I'm one of these people that loves the innovations, um, the democratizing aspects of the tech industry, but I do believe that the larger consolidations, uh, when Google and Facebook control about 85, 80% of advertising, and that's rippling throughout our society from its effect on on credibility of news all the way to its effect of smaller innovators who are trying to get into the space. There's so much of this conversation that we should be having because 20 years from now, if we do nothing, we're going to have a more stratified society. We're going to have a more suppression of wages. We're going to have a destruction of the, what makes America great, this idea that we all can have a shot to be in the middle class. Yeah, so I, I want to tease out a lot of those pieces, but your um, presentation of Silicon Valley is so interesting because you point out diversity issues. There are issues around gender. There are lots of allegations of sexual assault that's been rippling throughout the venture capital community for, better, for the better part of the past couple of weeks. We have tech companies getting larger. We have lots of billionaires who maybe don't understand the impact of 
what they're doing. It sounds to me like the Wild West, but as a reporter, it's always felt that the only way that might change is if government drops the hammer in some of these areas. But I also don't know how exactly it would drop the hammer. Right, because, in I, because I want to tell you on the flip side, government's doing a lot of things to stifle urgently needed innovation. And so whether it's like I took on the FAA because <laughs> I, t- I said to them, if you guys were around during the time of Orwell and Wilver Wright, we wouldn't have gotten off the ground. And what they were doing to squelch UAV uh, drone innovations, literally it was moving to places like France, which were years ahead of us in creating a regulatory environment where that in- innovation can thrive. Nuclear innovation, next generation nuclear doesn't have the risk of, of meltdowns. It actually eats the spent fuel um, rods that we're having troubles now trying to figure out where we're going to store. We're going to be using them for energy. But we don't have a regulatory environment where, where, where that kind of innovation can thrive. So we do a lot of things in America that undermine the kind of innovation that we want to see happening. So I, I just want to take a, a sober, balanced uh, view of this. And again, what I was talking about in the first section of the show what are the value statements that we should be putting forward that we can all agree on that should frame what we're doing? And some of them are as basic as if you're an American and you work, you should not be poor. I mean, let's start with simple value statements and then and then project those value statements through what's happening to our society with the digitized economy. Why, if the future of work is people doing things like TaskRabbit and lift. If that's the future of work, well, we're in trouble unless we get government to begin to create a framework where people in those environments can can survive. But the future of work is a fissured workplace and people are outsourcing this, outsourcing that. There's got to be some rules that are going to protect that. And so what I'm trying to say is that we need a, a framework based upon our values because right now what I see happening is a violation of values that I don't care what your political party is a violation of values that are common to our country. If we're dealing with technology and innovations, that I totally understand. But how do you combat the ills of Silicon Valley, the social ills that you pointed out, diversity being chief among them, right? Like, how does government play a role in this long-running conversation at a time when companies like Apple and Facebook and Google are making only marginal changes to the composition of their workforce? Yeah, and and look, I I... I, I don't want to say that every fix is a government fix. Fair. And I think that, that often government, every time they see a, a problem, they're the hammer and, and everything is a nail. We have a societal problem with seeing each other with value and dignity and understanding that we need each other, that we're, we're all in this, that just because you're a different race or different religion, we're the great human experiment. We are a profoundly diverse nation and we're the first country, the oldest constitutional democracy that said, we're not going to be about a, a, a theocracy, a common religion. We're not going to be about a common race or national origin. We're going to be about common set of values and ideals. And Silicon Valley right now is not reflecting those ideals of diversity. And they are hurting themselves and they're hurting this country. And that's a problem that's a pipeline problem that re- is reflected in our education system in this country, which the fact that we haven't figured this out on on K-12 education, uh, when we have the capacity to do it and we've made this nation the place as devaluing at a time that other countries are blowing past us in their public education systems. And you see that based upon the zip code you're born in, it's the kind of education you're going to get. From the pipeline issues all the way going up to universities, all the way into the employment market, we need to be talking about diversity, not as some kind of like charity towards uh, people that are diverse, but the, something that is urgently needed for the strength of the whole. And And Silicon Valley, the VC world, is appallingly lacking of diversity, and, and they should be moving with m- more aggressive action towards addressing these issues. So, so to circle this back where we started, which is the size and the power and the reach of Silicon Valley, um, one of the things you had said is that the U.S. had kind of fallen behind 
you know, other countries, other governments have taken a closer look at the tech industry. So I have to ask about Google, which is facing a record-breaking fine in the European Union uh, for the way it handled search and advertising and some of its other businesses, which also happen to be under continued investigation in the EU. Did the EU get it right? Is that an example of you know the United States having an opportunity to do something, to go after a company, to police its actions, then didn't do what it should have done? Yeah, I, I guess this goes back to what we said before. We have regulatory agencies that just aren't doing their jobs. And you see this with big banks. You see this with the entire crisis we just came through. What's amazing to me is that we haven't learned the lessons and we're not we're not we're not protecting consumers. Look So should the US government take a look at Google? I think that the U.S. government absolutely should take a look at Google. On on grounds for an antitrust case? I think the U.S. government should be far more active in antitrust actions because where they have taken actions, it, it's often created collateral benefits to society. Uh, Microsoft taking action, the Bell Labs, uh, uh, the Bell Company taking actions have all resulted in- These are major U.S. antitrust cases. Major U.S. antitrust cases that, that now are looked at years later and seeing the many benefits to consumers and to innovation that comes from a lot of these actions that they've taken. So there are benefits to be had if the U.S. government were to be more critical, more take have more scrutiny of a company like uh, Google. Uh, 100%. So moving past that to my least favorite debate, which is net neutrality, because I've covered this issue for uh, the million years that I've been on this beat, it's been a pretty momentous week uh, in that fight, just given the fact that comments were due to the FCC as the chairman there, Ajit Pai, looks to roll back some of the rules put in place under the Obama administration. And for those who don't follow the ins and outs of this wonky debate, they're basically rules that force internet providers to treat all web traffic equally. Um, you're obviously a big fan of net neutrality. You've talked about talked about it in public in the past. But I guess the question is, why should other people care? I think this, this, this is the challenge as a, as a reporter is I have to explain this to people. So like, explain to people why they should care about an issue like net neutrality at a time when there are things like healthcare taking up a great deal of bandwidth in Washington. And is the only reason why this is your least favorite subject is just because you've been covering it so it long? It won't stop. It literally won't stop. I'm, I'm convinced that like, like when, when, when the nuclear war ends everything, it'll be, cock- <laughs> it'll be like cockroaches and net neutrality left. It's, that's going to be it. Uh, I'm going to be gone, but the debate will keep going. Right. Well, again... You do not want to have – I'm sorry to like bring – I feel like I'm bringing you back through your torture, um, back to your pain. But the internet is transforming society in ways that we don't even fully grasp yet. But to, but to have the internet that – the same forces we're talking about as earlier, forces of power, wealth consolidation, corporate control – have to, to have them having a free reign over what happens on the internet um, is going to stifle innovation. It's going to create unfair competition. It's going to undermine your ability to have um, what I love, just the freedom to be able to explore, freedom to access information. All of these things are now being threatened because you could have a large cable companies, for example, determining what information you get from whom uh, at what quality. And, and that's crazy to me to give – to surrender to large corporate interests, control of, of the internet, when it should be open, free, and fair. I mean, my jokes aside, the reason this has gone back and forth is because, you know, a Democratic FTC chairman will put out a plan, right, right. the companies will sue it, the rules get knocked down, the party control of the FCC changes. And so as I take a look at some of the comments that Comcast and AT&T and Google and others had filed, the one thing that they all seemed to agree on was the need for legislation. Yes. Uh, because we're trying to govern the internet with with rules that were created before the inter- with rules 
that were out before the internet was even imagined. But I'm a big pessimist, and I don't see any sign that Capitol Hill is moving anywhere close to legislation. Uh, Lots of folks are making noise about it, while at the same time, you know, saber-rattling around this issue. So uh, am I wrong to be as cynical about this sort of thing? No, you're absolutely right to be skeptical, and to the frustration of even... Uh, a lot of these large corporations because they know that, well, there's a Republican president right now, so they're uh, going to try to get rid of net neutrality. If it's a Democratic president, then suddenly those corporations are going to have to stop their practices because they're going to appoint a new FCC chair that has a very different vision. So they're 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 wanting there to be fair rules. But just as a guy right now who's listened to Donald Trump, uh, um, who's a president, has the power of the pen, I don't want to go to work on legislation that he is not going to approve and because and, he has a very different philosophy than I do. I think we should have net neutrality. He's saying let corporations uh, be able to do the kind of things of throttling, blocking, all the kind of things that we uh, we who believe in net neutrality uh, are, are fighting against. So, so what should we expect then? The FCC under Pi has the re- has the votes. That's a Republican-led agency to scrap these rules and to potentially put nothing in place. That was one of the ideas floated in his proposed order that there wouldn't be rules at the FCC to govern net neutrality. Right. He he keeps talking about the soft touch and so on and so forth. Yeah. So 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 at that point, then if Congress isn't likely to do something on this in the next couple of months, at least it sounds that way from what you're saying, and the FCC is in a place where it's looking to roll back those rules and can easily do so, are consumers in trouble? Could we find ourselves in a world in which we have years of no protections in the books of this sort? So years, meaning like the remainder of this presidency, which I hope hope is uh, not that long, uh, (laughs) definitely not a two-term president. Uh (laughs) Uh, Uh-oh. Look, I I think that we're in a bad space right now. And a lot of people, and this gets me in so many areas from the Department of Education to Department of Justice, most people just don't understand the regulatory power that a president has. And, you know, many people voted for Donald Trump or didn't vote because they didn't like the two choices. They just did not understand the consequences for having someone like that in office. And so this is one of those consequences. We are going to have a lot of uncertainty. Businesses don't like uncertainty, nor should they. And this is going to be a a time of uncertainty until, you know, and most people think that government moves quick. It doesn't. I mean, even if you think of something as basic as civil rights legislation, it took decades to of fighting multiple failures of bills to finally get some of the basic protections that you and I enjoy. So this is going to be a long process. But I tell you what speeds it up is what we've already seen, record numbers of people filing public comments. The big protests just a week ago. Yeah. So when, when, when it goes back to the first framing of this uh, podcast, if when people are engaged on an issue, Congress tends to move a lot quicker. Um, and, and that's why it's very important for all of us to be engaged and aware, to be active citizens, not thinking democracy is a spectator sport, that we've got to engage and we've got to let our voices be heard. So we're going to look to the future in just a second, but it's time for our second break. So let me kick it back to Kara for another word from our sponsors. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever have to send money internationally? If you do, you know it's expensive and time consuming and the exchange rate you get from your bank or provider can be terrible. Next time you have to make an international money transfer, you should use TransferWise. The exchange rate is incredibly good, so your money goes much further, and you pay only one small upfront fee. Setting up a payment is simple and fast. You know exactly what you'll pay up front, and you get a real exchange rate with no markup. The two friends who founded TransferWise were immigrants from Estonia, and they were sick of getting ripped off when they sent money home. So they came up with a quicker, cheaper, and easier way to transfer money between countries. Then they realized... This great idea could be a company. Today, TransferWise lets millions of people and businesses all over the world send money internationally. 
See how much you can save at TransferWise.com. You can download the app for Android or iOS. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. Transfer as in I need to transfer money to another country. Wise as in I'm going to do it the wise way. TransferWise.com. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. Did you say my name? Hi. Yes, I oh hey, I'm here. Back again. What's going on? No, I'm here. Hello. Hi, Were you talking you about the podcast without me? Yes, I was trying to. And every Friday on the podcast, we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, what did we talk about this week? And where did we talk about it? We went to Google. Yeah, uh, we were right in Mountain danger. View. Although, if you asked me to tell you which building we were in, I'm not sure I could tell you because I always get lost when I'm at Google. Mm-hmm. But we talked about virtual reality with Google's Clay Bevor. He is the vice president of virtual reality for Google. He also oversees Google Tango, which, which is an AR product. Yeah. But as he said on the podcast, you know, the, these two things are not entirely separate. There's a lot of yeah. talk right now about virtual reality, mixed reality, merged reality, augmented reality. All of the big companies are working and, and, on it, and we had a fascinating conversation about this. And Google's playing this. big in this area. I always call Google the Borg, but now I'm calling Amazon the Borg, just so you know. They're all the Borg. So okay. it's like a really interesting competition for our, these companies are really going to be running the future in entertainment and all kinds of things. So it's a great topic. Absolutely. It was a really great discussion, and we hope you'll go listen to it, I said. And you find that at Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. And we're back. I'm sitting here with Senator Booker, Democratic Senator from New Jersey. And I want to turn our attention now to the future of both technology and U.S. politics. Just a few days ago, Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX and Tesla, uh, paid a little visit to uh, the NGA meeting, sat down with a bunch of governors uh, to talk about things like AI. And he basically warned about robot overlords, you know, existential risks to humankind. It was a very, very dire warning uh, from a man who knows technology quite well. What's your take on this? Is 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 he on the more alarmist side of spectrum here? Or, or do you think that there are some serious concerns around AI that government has to get its hands around? I think that uh, my bigger concern right now is that when it comes to AI, blockchain, I can go through the kind of innovations that are going on right now in this space. My biggest concern right now is we have an anti-science president and he's creating a space for the Chinese and the Russians and the Koreans and others who are doubling down on their investments in sciences and research and innovation. And his budget, just to be clear, cut or proposed to cut lots of funding from Everything U.S. science agencies. Everything from the agencies. National Institute of Health to the National Science Foundation. Uh, he hasn't even uh, appointed people to uh, some of the heads of major science innovations. This is disastrous. I mean, the the t- technologies, innovations, the jobs that are being created by a lot of things we've talked about right now are government innovation, from touchscreens to GPS to the batteries on the phones we have are all coming from collective investments we've all made in science, technology, and innovation. And so my bigger concern is that the fields of battle of the future, the Russians are showing this. They can't beat us right now tank for tank, aircraft carrier for aircraft carrier. Where they're doubling down on is things like the the cyber warfare and trying to engage in things that AI would give you a tremendous advantage <laughs> uh, in, in doing. And so I worry that I, we have an anti-science president who is not valuing this space. And if you just look at the percentage of our GDP that we're investing in science compared to our competitors, uh, we're going down and they're going up. And so I understand Elon Musk, a lot of respect for him as an incredible uh, uh, idea innovator and love some of his infrastructure and transportation ideas. But right now, my the, the, the fire I'm trying to light under people is that, that we are, as a country, going from the innovation nation 
uh, because we valued the sciences, we created regulatory environments where innovation innovators could thrive, that we're creating now an environment that is a turning around, turning our back on science, turning our back on technology, turning our back on innovation, and allowing our competitors to catch up and threaten our globally dominant place in the sciences and innovation exportation. But, but even beyond spending on science and research, you know, the effects of AI are, seem to be pretty pronounced. I think there was one study by PwC that said four in 10 American jobs would be affected by things like automation, you know, probably around the 2030s or so. It's kind of a shorter term horizon than most people think. Are you worried about these issues around the future of work? What to do about training these individuals who may be displaced as a result of AI? Yeah, look, right, right before I came here, I, I had a meeting, a, a gathering of me and some other thought leaders about the future of work because I'm one of those people that in, in the Senate that wants us to get ahead of these terrible trends that are threatening folks. What is, uh, while I was a senator that said, I, I get very upset unless we help to foster innovation. That's why I have bipartisan nuclear in, uh, innovation. That's why I have drone legislation. That's why uh, on driverless cars, I was pushing the, the Obama administration to create sandboxes where we can innovate on these stuff. But I'm also one of those people that says, hey, if we get when, when we get driverless cars, it's going to it's going to put hundreds of thousands of people uh, out of the work that they're in right now. We need to start doing something about that. So I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about technology. I'm excited about innovation. But my concern, you know, uh, again, as someone who lives in a community that has already been crushed um, by some of these trends in terms of the injustices in the criminal justice system, the injustices of bigoted housing policy, all the kind of things that are that are inhibiting economic growth in many communities, that these trends are just getting worse for struggling communities. But, 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 but you and hold on, hold on. Well, let me just make this point. So in the abstract, I, I still remember with my, having conversations with my dad about this new thing called an ATM <laughs> and how that was going to put tellers out of jobs. Well, actually, it hasn't. There are more tellers now. So we can't necessarily predict the future of this, but I know that there are things we should be doing right now that we're just not doing. When I brought together all the manufacturers in my uh, city together, they didn't. I was wondering what they're going to complain to me. I was a mayor, and they didn't complain to me about Obamacare or taxes. Their first complaint to me was that they could not find machinists, advanced manufacturers. <laughs> there are millions of jobs right now in America that are not being filled because we haven't created the right linkages between our education system and the jobs that are actually there. In fact, we make people feel bad. Elite folks looking down on you don't have a college education. Well, dear God, in American society, why are we putting that? I joke all the time that I've got degrees. My father used to tease me. He goes, "More boy, you got more degrees in the month of July, <laughs> but you're not hot." <laughs> and and so I got degrees: history, sociology, political science. What am I qualified to do in the 21st century? Uh, technology economy, maybe be a United States senator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the real jobs that are out there, you don't need a college education for. Germany understands that with a large percentage of their population in apprenticeship programs that lead to middle class jobs. Do your colleagues understand that, though? Like in, in conversations I had with members of Congress, people in the Trump administration, maybe some even folks in the Obama administration, too. It doesn't seem like they've fully embraced or I, understood AI, some of these changes in the economy that I, are coming. I, people don't. We are not ahead of this trend. We're getting crushed by it. It's why the first piece of legislation I did, the number one bipartisan piece of legislation, Republican from South Carolina, Tim Scott, was about apprenticeship programs because educationally we are being left behind. We're not preparing the incredible minds of the future in our country for the jobs that actually exist. And until we start getting that incongruency solved and start start celebrating people that if you don't have a college degree, that's not what I want to celebrate. Do you have the, the skills and training necessary uh, to live your American dream. And that's not what we're doing right now. So th this is, I love this podcast because we're only touching on the top of a lot of these issues, but these are the issues that are going to shape our society, whether it's 
corporate consolidation, the bid economy, uh, the gig economy, that the, the fissured workplace, technological changes like ATMs versus tellers, all of these things are, ch- are not trends of the future. They're happening right now, and they're causing amazing disconsent discontent and insecurity in our society and in our communities because we're not equipping ourselves to deal with these trends and get ahead of them. I believe in in business. I, I, I don't believe businesses should outsource their costs and internalize their profits, but I believe in businesses. I don't believe businesses should over-consolidate to the detriment of consumers and workers, but I believe in business. I believe in innovation. That's the kind of country we've been. And by the way, for decades, when my parents' generation it expanded the middle class. The right thing happened. Wealth was created. People got rich, but not in the ways that are happening right now, where you see all the benefits accruing to elites and, and the detriments, whether it's environmental poisoning uh, or d- wages being driven down. All of these things, we're, we're, we're moving in the wrong direction as a country, and that's problematic. So we're talking about the future of technology, but let's also talk about your future for a second. In the uh, language of D.C. political types, I must ask, what are you thinking about 2020? My eyesight is great, <laughs> and I, I appreciate. It. I see you clearly. Are you are you exploring anything in 2020? Um, l- look, I am not exploring anything. Uh, I'm up for re-election in 2020 to the United yeah. States Senate, and but are you thinking about the White House? Right now, I think about it every day because the guy who's, the <laughs> are guy who's there. Are you thinking about inhabiting the White House <laughs> oh, yourself? Listen, people ask me if I'm running for president. I tell them I'm running from this president oh. and trying to make changes. Look. Why did I get into politics in the first place? I was a young kid coming out of Yale Law School, moved into a tough, tough neighborhood, eventually moved into the projects, lived there for eight years. And it was my community, a bunch of tenant organizers, I was tenant rights folks, that told me that we got to change City Hall. That's the beginning of my my political career. And what motivates me every day is the communities that are being left behind. And what worries me is that with all the benefits, and I'm so proud of the things from education in Newark. Uh, uh, we were ranked the number one city in America for beat the odds schools, high poverty, high performance. I'm so proud of so many accomplishments in Newark. But let me tell you this. One of the most painful conversations I ever had right after the murder of a, yet another African-American teen. And by the way, the shooting I mentioned that happened in Congress to a congressperson, horrible. I'm so happy that CNN covered it around the clock. But about the 10 days before that, there was a shooting across the street from where I live. And we have children being murdered at outrageous rates right now. And I still remember my dad, who was born poor. He used to joke with me, don't tell people I was born poor, son. Tell them the truth. <laughs> I was just Poe, P-O. I couldn't <laughs> afford the other two letters. So this guy was born, like the majority of the kids in, in my city, in cities across New Jersey, he was born poor to a single mom, born minority black uh, in a segregated environment. New Jersey, I think we're fifth most segregated state for African Americans, fourth most segregated for Latinos. Back in my father's day, it was de jure segregation. Now it's de facto. We Americans, Du Bois said profoundly, the true tragedy of man, I'd say men and women, is that we know so little of each other because uh, we create separations and we still enforce an invisibility to people who are struggling, black or white. But this is what my dad said to me, one of the most painful conversations. My father, who died six days before I was elected to the Senate, he looked at me and he said, boy, Corey, I, I worry that a child born in my circumstances, poor, black to a single mom in a segregated environment, I I worry that it would be better for that child who had been born in 1936 to make it than born today. Now, I'm a data guy. When I was mayor, I used to say, God, we trust, but everybody else bring me data. I wanted to make decisions based on my bottom line as mayor of Newark, which was, what was this going to do to empower people in my community? So I looked at the data. Is my dad right? Would it have been better to be born in 1936 under those circumstances or now? Well, in some ways, he's wrong, but in a lot of ways, he's right. 
One out of three black kids born today is, is unless we change something, is going to go to prison because of our hyper mass incarceration that would rather incarcerate than empower. The leading cause of death for young black men in my dad's age was not murder like it is now. I can go through the data and it is a shame on society, a shame on this country that we haven't yet under, uh, understood ways to develop that natural resource, the genius of our young people. And so that's what motivates me every single day. And, and one of the things I want to do in Congress now that the state of New Jersey is giving me this chance is one of those people that wants to talk about things that don't poll really well, but dear God, more people should be talking about them. Look at the injustices within our food system. How can we be a nation that subsidizes the very things that one other agency of our government tells us to eat less of? <laughs> that, that you could literally walk into a bodega in Camden and get a Twinkie product cheaper than a, an apple because of our twisted subsidies that is driven by the power of corporate agriculture. How can we have right now, for all those bacon lovers, you go down to North Carolina right now, I went down there to see this with my own eyes, pigs produce 10 times the excrement that, that humans do. There's 9 million pigs in North Carolina. There's 9 million people in New Jersey. Well, they don't know what to do with the stuff. So they moved into many of these companies. The biggest one, one of the biggest ones, a Chinese company move into poor black communities. They create these massive lagoons for their pig excrement, and then they spray it over crops. I watched it mist into residential neighborhoods. People can't run their air conditions, can't open their windows, can't put their clothing on the line, cancer rates, respiratory illnesses, all because of our screwed up systems. Now, I know Iowa's great pig state and this. So I don't want to ever not speak truth about the injustices in this country because I'm concerned about electoral viability in the future. I am a United States senator. I'm the fourth elected African-American in the history of this country since Reconstruction. I have, a, I have an opportunity to drive home the people that are being left behind. They're not just inner city Newark. I think the reason why so many people supported Trump is because they lost faith in this political system and they were tired of feeling like they were being lied to over and over again. They were this carnival barker that was was the can candidate Trump was able to get them to support them. So I don't know what my future holds, but I'm going to spend between now and 2020 until I have to go before voters in New Jersey for re-election, calling out these injustices and trying to present, which is even more important, to present a vision of this country that compels not Democrats, but compels Americans of shared values that we are going to see a country that works, where we do see business success, especially small businesses, innovators. Uh, 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 pushing the, the realms of human potential, where it is an inclusive vision. So whoever you are, you see yourself that greater vision for America. And so that's really what I want to focus on, not the next election, which is what gets us in trouble in this country, because it's it literally President Trump hadn't even put his hand on the Bible, and people were asking me that question <laughs> about there's some sickness in that. It's called being a reporter. We are very sick. I, I, we, are, I, we, are, right. we are a sick. But people. let's focus. <laughs> let's focus. You're you're a reporter, which by the way. God bless the First Amendment. You're such a critical agent in this democracy. I hope people see that more than ever. But we need to elevate the citizen again. We need to have a vision, a unifying vision for this country. I want to be a part of that. I don't care what campaigns in the future to come. I want to bring this country together again. Show us that we're more alike than we are different. Common pain, common purpose. May we have a vision for this future that is has nobody's father, whether it's a coal miner or my African-American dad, ever saying to their child, 
they worry that the next generation is not going to do better than the one before. Well, when that is eventually uh, your White House uh, speech, <laughs> when, <laughs> when this when this becomes your announcement speech for 2020, uh, just do me a favor and come back uh, to recode, decode. <laughs> we'll get more into national politics. There's so many other things I wanted to talk about. I know, I know, but but I'm going to get yelled at if I don't let you go uh, at this point. So, Senator Booker. <laughs> well, you're, you're in the press. You're used to being yelled at. You're heckled now from politicians. Oh, yeah, heckled from politicians and also Kara Swisher. Uh, yeah. So, on that, on that note, Senator Booker, thank you so much for My joining us. My fellow Anthony. Your fellow Anthony here for so, Anthony Solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I'm going to send it back to Kara now, and she's going to tell you more about our other podcasts here at Recode. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Cory Booker for coming on the podcast and to Recode's senior policy and politics editor, Tony Rahm, for conducting the interview. You can find all of Tony's outstanding coverage at recode.net. If you enjoy the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, just to name a few. You can find all those episodes and more wherever you found this one and on our website, recode.net slash podcasts. Now that you're done with this, check out one of our other shows. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you hear no BS interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Also, thanks to Digital Media, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.